Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello listeners, it's Beth here from Radical Philosophy. And it's that time of the year again. It's Radiothon here at 3CR. Being a community radio, we need to raise funds every year to to stay on air. It, it costs around $100 an hour to keep 3CR on air. And there's so many interesting shows that you just don't find on commercial radio. So I just thought that if everybody who's listening to this today could donate $10 to Radical Philosophy, and of course you're welcome to donate more than $10 as well, we would meet our target and be able to stay on air. And also you'd be supporting women in philosophy with your donation. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. So you can jump online and donate. You can call the station at 3CR Community Radio or you can come into 21 Smith Street Fitzroy and donate. The broadcasters here at 3CR are all volunteers, so your donation would be much appreciated. I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. I'm Marsha Barron at Indiana University. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. tuned into Radical Philosophy and I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today on the program I'm going to be speaking with Mariana, Dr. Mariana Lopez about menstrual taboos in India. Welcome to the program. Thank you Beth, really happy to be here. Well could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Um, so I was born in Mexico and I moved to the UK in 2015, uh, which is where I'm currently based. I came here to do a master's at Oxford, and well, at the time I just didn't really know that administration was um, an issue, let alone a topic worth of academic inquiry. And However, it was that year, 2015, that Time magazine called the year that periods went public. And this was because the media was uh, finally creating some momentum around um, tampon tax and there were a lot of manifestations in the country and across the European Union around the the unfairness of having to pay an additional tax for menstrual products when other items are not considered luxury. So this kind of sparked a lot of questions in my head and I started looking into it and I came across all this literature around um, well, women who didn't have access to menstrual products and I discovered all these organizations that were working on reusables and it just you know, sparked a lot of questions in my head. And one of the most big ones was, well, what about the environment? What is happening to all the waste that comes from these menstrual products that we're using on a, on a regular basis? 
I've never really thought about my own period and my experience, again, let alone the sustainability part of this problem. That was when I decided to, to focus my PhD on this topic and to try and explore the implications that taboos around menstruation have both for society but also the environment. So, um, could you tell us about the history of menstruation products in India and some of the prevailing taboos around menstruation? Sure. Um, let me just start by saying that uh, in many cultures, um, menstruation is still considered um, a phenomenon that evokes fear and disgust. So unlike other bodily fluids, such as like breast milk, menstrual blood is actually viewed as being um, disgusting and associated with pollution and harm. And this can result in practices that restrict women's behavior, and they also restrict those of others around them. So, for example, in some regions in Nepal, uh, when a woman is menstruating, she's often forced to sleep in a small shed outside the community. And this can be a very uncomfortable shed and, you know, exposed out in the cold, out in the open. And, and there are many, many dreadful stories of what happens to women when they are you know, forced out and have to spend a couple of days out because of their periods. And however, this is not only in developing countries. Um, beliefs around menstruation can also mark women who are menstruating as being disabled or imbalanced, out of control. In the 2016 US election, there was a lot of criticism saying that Hillary Clinton shouldn't be president because how can we trust someone to make decisions for the nation when she could be overpowered by hormones and rage because she was menstruating? So, and the, the question of taboos is actually quite broad. And it's also important to say that they are not universal. And there are different beliefs around menstruation that vary across regions, and they also change over time. In some cultures, menstruation is actually celebrated. It's considered a symbol of fertility, and in some instances, it's even used as a key ingredient for like love charms and potions to heal wounds. So it's not all necessarily bad. That being said, um, taboos can actually do result in women's oppression. And what happens is that in many ways, and they can have a negative effect on women's lives by preventing them from accessing information, by, and also by leading them to feel anxious, to feel shame, to have a low self-esteem, and a real fear of, of this natural biological process. When I was looking um, into India, I found that um, well, a recent review of studies found that the majority of women actually do experience these restrictions. So, for example, um, this review that I was mentioning found that across 138 studies, 77% of the girls in those samples followed restrictions while in their period. And this goes from being uh, forbidden to pray, to being forbidden to touch certain foods, to not even being allowed to wash their hair. And a lot of these restrictions are ultimately attributed to the belief that menstruation is something that renders women unclean and that it should be hidden away. And as for menstrual products, which is kind of the other side of the issue, it's interesting to note that they, this have been available in India since the 19th century. So advertisements were first found in the Times of India as early as 1885. And even though at the time these were primarily directed to the European and Anglo-Indian population, today India is the second biggest market for these products in Asia-Pacific and is the greatest market uh, with um, potential for volume growth. Sales of these products have grown um, over 40% over the past seven years, and they are expected to continue to grow at a really big pace, especially since more and more women are actually being able to access education, employment, and 
getting a bigger disposable income, which is enabling to buy these products in a way that they were not able to do before. Um, How is menstrual waste disposed of in India and what is the role of the waste pickers? Uh, that, that's a great question and I think an important uh, point to note is that uh, there is a growing access to menstrual products in India. Um, however, taboos also remain present. And the question what I, that I want to answer through my research and my PhD was precisely how are these taboos linked the growing quantities of menstrual waste that we're seeing in the country. And I was surprised there was very limited research on the disposal aspect of these issues. And I, I was wondering how, how is this waste really disposed of in, in a country that lacks uh, an efficient waste management system? What happens um, and what impacts the disposal practices actually have on the environment? So I conducted research in, in two cities in India and I actually found that the most common disposal method is to wrap menstrual products in newspapers or plastic bags, sometimes even both, and then to throw them away in, in open spaces or often, sometimes in, within household waste. In my sample, over 90% of the women wrap these products in a plastic bag, and they did this to hide the smell of the blood, but also to prevent animals from eating it. So I heard a lot of stories about monkeys going around in the trash and then just hanging the menstrual pads on trees. So it is, a, it's, it is a legitimate concern. The women are worried about what's going to happen with these products and they are investing a lot of time and energy into hiding them. In many instances, it's also common for them to wash them. And if you have used a menstrual uh, sanitary pad, you will know that these are not meant to be washed. These are disposable. That is precisely the appeal that they are, you know, you use them once and you throw them away. Yet, because of the belief that menstrual blood is harmful, these women actually wash the products and put them below sink and they let the running water take away the blood, again, with the intention of preventing the blood from spreading. The embarrassment around menstruation that taboos also create can also um, create the feeling that um, they shouldn't throw this away um, in their waste. So again, very common for women to just go out at night and throw a plastic bag full of menstrual pads, you know, in a construction site or in a slum or in an open space because they just don't want to be associated with it. And what I also discovered is that in the majority of the environmental impact assessments, um, we often fail to consider these practices. When we think of the negative impact of menstrual products, we often focus on the waste. But I actually ran some numbers, and I found that if sales in India reached the 30 billion menstrual products by 2030, as we expect by market growth projections, and, and if all these products are actually washed and wrapped, this is going to end and result in 1,800 million tons of plastic and wastewater per year. This impact is much larger than the waste itself. And of course, there's also the human aspect. And as we talked about um, before, so waste pickers play an important but very unrecognized role when it comes to the collection and segregation of, of menstrual waste. And there are about 1.5 million waste pickers in India. In Delhi alone, a waste picker is estimated to collect between 10 to 50 kilograms of waste per day. And, and my findings actually show that waste pickers um, are in a position to contribute to help better manage the collection and segregation of menstrual waste because of the role they play in directly going house by house and collecting this waste. However, they're also uh, affected by taboos. They, their practices and the way that they engage with this waste is also shaped by the belief that this menstrual blood is a source of harm and that they shouldn't be exposed to it. In addition, they often share the view that menstrual waste is female waste. 
so it should only be handled by women, which again places a big burden to female way speakers who are already discriminated in many ways. And what happens in the end is that the taboos and the perception that this is dangerous and this is dirty and disgusting um, ultimately led them to avoid uh, collecting menstrual waste or they burn it on the side instead of like putting it into the right um, segregation channels. And this just increases the likelihood that waste will not be adequately destroyed. So I guess in sum, um, my findings show that <laughs> the taboos around menstruation uh, need to be addressed because they, they drive the way that we dispose of these products, but they also the way that waste speakers engage with them. And if we don't focus on them, uh, what's going to happen is that the dire environmental situation that is already growing is just going to get much worse. What solutions can be implemented to address the social and environmental impacts of menstrual waste? I think this issue has many aspects, and so it's very difficult to come up with one solution. Disposing of menstrual blood and menstrual products can have different social, cultural, and religious connotations, and we need to really understand this before designing a solution. However, there are a couple of things that we can start with. The first is that we need to collect more data on the use of menstrual products, but also um, the volume of menstrual waste. Um, if we don't attempt to better understand the quantities of waste and the waste being disposed, the places where it's being disposed of, then we are never going to be able to truly build a picture of the size of the issue. The second is that we need to integrate information on disposal across all menstrual hygiene management programs. We need to think about how waste will be managed in different settings, not only in schools, but also homes, public spaces like toilets. It's important that we continue to educate girls on the realities of menstruation and how to manage it, but also to target different groups of women, especially those that are not in school. Another important challenge is to support um, the initiatives that train and waste speakers on the management of menstrual waste, and that actually help them to be able to play a part in informing users of how to dispose of this waste. And encouragingly, many waste speaking organizations are already taking the lead on this, and they're working with their members to help them become empowered and to understand how to better manage this waste without being exposed to diseases, but also in a way that is um, empowering them to help demand better practices from, from the users who are ultimately responsible for letting out this waste. However, um, they often lack funding and they lack support from the government. So this is something that is definitely worth considering. If we truly want to make sure that menstruation doesn't have a social impact, we need to consider those people that are at the bottom of the, of the producing chain. We need to consider those people who are whose, life, whose livelihoods depend on their ability um, to deal with waste, including menstrual waste. And, and lastly, we need more investment in sustainable solutions. Um, this goes from washable and reusable pads to menstrual cups to absorbent underwear. And we need to think about all women. We need to think about anyone who menstruates and their abilities and the possibility of making an informed choice to having not only access to uh, the resources, but also um, the confidence to make um, to make a different choice. And this is where I would invite anybody who's listening to take a minute to consider um, sustainable options. If you might, if you have a period and you have to manage it, just take a moment to really understand um, what are the products that you're using, and give yourself the opportunity to try a different option. I generally believe that. Everybody deserves a choice that meets their physical needs as well as their 
socioeconomic circumstances and that any program that we put forward needs to consider this sociocultural norms that we tend to call taboos, but also whether products are available, the usage practices, and whether there are sanitations and waste management systems in place. Disposal is just as important as access when it comes to menstrual products, and we can no longer afford to overlook it. Are there any organisations that are making a different difference in women's lives in India? There are so many, and there are so many around the world even that are doing great work on this issue. And their projects go from delivering education to distributing products, supporting women's self-help groups to manufacture products, raising awareness on sustainable alternatives. There are so many uh, amazing things that a lot of those groups are, uh, are working on. Um, I would like to highlight three that I've had the opportunity to engage with and of which I am a, um, a genuine fan and supporter. The first one is Stan, and they are a social venture um, that have a mission to eradicate peer poverty. Um, with the help of engineers at the Harvard Innovation Lab, Stan developed this menstrual cup that can be reused for 10 years. And like other cups, this has a ring that really makes it easy to remove. It's a, the cup that I use. And for every cup that they sell, they donate one for free to a woman or girl in India who can't afford it. And along with their donations, they also deliver education workshops. The second organization is Ecofem. They're a woman-led social enterprise that produces and sells washable cloth mats. They work with units of women who actually receive fair wages and have a safe working environment. And they're based in India, but they ship their products internationally. And they also support programs that deliver education and that help marginalized women to become um, educated on how to better manage their periods, but also to become ambassadors of these sustainable alternatives. So if you're looking for a more sustainable option, um, these two organizations are a fantastic way to start. And the last one is um, Oki, and this is the, the, the world's first period tracker that actually was created by girls. This was um, designed and originally rolled out by UNICEF, and it provides information about menstruation in, oh, in a very positive way. And of course, it also allows you to track your period. And unlike many other apps, it does not capture uh, personally identifiable data, which is great because ultimately this is a very private issue and nobody should exploit your personal data um, to sell or advertise anything. And, well, I guess if, if you are trying to better manage your peer, and especially if you're trying to educate yourself or educate others, I think this is a great choice. Yeah, it certainly would be. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Well, one of the things that I realized through this project is that we need more research and that research is the first step to inform solutions and to really develop programs and initiatives that meet the needs and the realities of different women. It's, I keep saying women is a, a generic term, but there are so many um, different groups of individuals who have very specific needs and we need to respect um, those needs. We need to make sure that whatever solution that we offer is something that that's going to be it's going to drive a meaningful change in their lives. So at the moment, I am focusing on disseminating my research and hoping to get feedback from people working in this space, as well as to continue to learn more about this issue. And so I would say that if you're interested in this topic or if you know somebody who can benefit from a different perspective on this issue, please reach out. I'm always eager to collaborate. I love talking about this issue. It's one of my favorite things in the world. And so um, if this is something of interest, um, please reach out. 
again, my hope from now on is to continue to, to learn more about this issue and to kind of create awareness of the importance of thinking both about the social and environmental impact of menstruation and the need to challenge taboos to better achieve and inform solutions that would ultimately help anybody who has a period to manage it with dignity. Yes, I have heard that girls in India miss quite a bit of school because they're not able to go to school when they're menstruating. Of course, and, and there's, that's a very harsh reality. And uh, picture yourself, if you didn't have access to a product, if you had the real risk of bleeding through your clothes, would you leave the house? But also, if you were, if you knew that the there was a very real risk of being shamed and you know publicly disgraced, if you had a stain on your clothes, would you leave the house? The risk is just too much, and also the uncomfortable sensation. And it's not only true for girls who miss school; it's also true for women who miss work days. And in in the best case scenario, they're able to stay at home. In some scenarios, like waste pickers, they are not able to do that, and they don't have access to products because they depend on their work and to earn a livelihood. Their families depend on them, so they can't stay at home. And they go out in, in the heat and just manufacture whatever they can to handle their blood, and then you know just work for a full day without having options. And that is a very unfair reality. So um, the the point is, um, we need to think of solutions that meet the needs of everybody because it is simply um, too frustrating to, uh, to conceive of people not having access to alternatives to manage such a natural process. And yet, um, we need to ensure that these alternatives are sustainable because in a scenario where everybody has access to plastic um, or sanit- synthetic sanitary pads, we're gonna end up with a really insurmountable um, Uh, amount of waste and who is going to deal with the consequences of this yes yeah that's a very good point do you have any future study plans within this field well i would like to continue to expand my work in india Um, as i mentioned i only had the opportunity to do research in two cities but i believe that um expanding it to, to gather the perspectives and the views of other women would help me enrich and enrich this project, but also to be able to translate it to a different context. I'd be very curious to understand how are, which are the disposal practices in, in in other contexts to better understand other potentially overlooked impacts um, that we haven't considered simply because we haven't done enough work on the ground on this issue. Yeah, is, there, is there any way that people are lobbying the government for change? And there are in many ways. So recently, for example, um, the government in India uh, re- removed the, the tax on menstrual products. And this was celebrated as a success of a lot of activist groups who were pushing um, precisely to make sure that the tax was removed so the price of products could you know, become uh, more affordable to a lot of women and girls who still lack access. So there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of movement and there are a lot of activists groups um, around the world that are pushing then the government to make investment in in this kind of solutions to to increase the amount of education that is being given in schools 
So definitely, there is a lot of momentum around menstruation, and there are a lot of groups that are pushing for it. I think what's missing from from this um, from this movement is uh, the perspective that we need to be a bit more holistic in in the solutions that that we embrace, and that we need to think of uh, the future. Uh, it's great to to see change happening and to ensure that everybody has or that, that we are pushing for more alternatives uh, which we just need to make sure that we consider both again the environment as well as the potentially beneficial social implications and there's a very hard balance to strike some people will say no it's not fair so first you know ask women this one to have access to any products they they don't have the ability to manage their menstruation now you're asking them to also care about the environment or you're asking them to embrace this this menstrual cup that they have to insert into your vagina without consideration of you know their their religious beliefs or um, the the cultural taboo around you know vaginal insertion. So it's it's a very difficult um, balance to strike because it has to become um, it has to be an informed choice and it has to be uh, something that the user decides. It's such a personal process. And it would be unfair to, again, to give poor solutions um, to women who, who lack access to other alternatives. And at the same time, um, they also deserve the possibility of understanding you know, what their choices mean for the environment. In throughout my research, I spoke to a lot of women and they generally care about the environment, their surroundings, their children. They don't want to live in a world where we have this um, you know, growing quantities of waste. And they simply don't know that it is in their power to make this kind of choice. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, as I said, I love talking about this issue. I think there are so many questions that we're yet to crack, and I'm always eager to to connect with people who are working on this space and who are who, like me are passionate to to just learn more and to contribute a bit to to help and become build a more inclusive society. Yes, it's a very, very important topic. And I've been speaking with Dr. Mariana Lopez about taboos around menstruation in India. We hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.